Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports. Welcome back to the Hello Old Sports podcast here on the Sports History Network. It is wonderful to be with you all again for a a little bit of a different type of episode. We usually uh, take our name very literally here on Hello Old Sports. We usually talk about old sports. And this time around, we're going to talk about sports that are not quite so old. And I'll explain the premise of that to you folks in just a minute here. I'm Dan Newman, of course, and I want to welcome, as always, my co-host, Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you today? I'm good. Dan, how are you? Good, good. I, this is sort of, uh, I'm curious to see where this one is going to go. I feel like we're kind of, uh, I'm hoping this goes well. Our goal is to talk about the greatest sports moments of the 21st century. And what sort of prompts this is that I was in looking through my, we, we often reference my book collection on the show. And I have these two coffee table books from about 20 years ago that were written by a man named Joe Garner, and they had two accompanying CDs that were narrated by Bob Casas, and it was sort of like the the 50 or so, and there were two. One was called And the Crowd Goes Wild, and then there was a sequel called And the Fans Roared, and each was a collection of 45 to 50 sports moments from the 20th century complete with you know a little bit of narration and radio or television broadcast clips kind of telling the story of some of the major moments good and bad in sports you know over the course of whatever you know 75 or so years since since radio broadcast had started to be available sometime in the 30s so i started thinking what would we include if we were to make sort of update that what if we were to do a third book covering only the 2000s, only from 2000 on, only the 21st century, and what would some of those moments be? So we've done a lot of lists on the show, obviously, in the past, and I don't know if we'll necessarily leave this with a hard and fast list, but I kind of want to just kind of have a conceptual, this this is sort of a bar conversation. This is, you know, two guys talking about what they would include if they were to put put this type of a list together. Yeah, and, and I actually found this a little challenging, to be honest, how to go about coming up with the list. Did I go annually? Do I sort of look at each sport? Like, a, do I pull up a list of events for each sport from each year? Because we're not talking five or six years here. We're talking 21 years. This would be mm-hmm. the equivalent of saying like, what were the best sporting events or the most biggest sporting moments in the 70s and 80s? Like at this point, that's what we'd be talking about. So what I ultimately ended up coming up with is I just started writing ones down off my head. First of sort of 
ones that maybe weren't from the sports we would consider talking about, you know, the Olympics are on. So I just came up with a couple of Olympic things. And then where I got most of my list from, and it's not using list as generous. I just kind of went through all the teams in basketball, baseball, and football in my head and just like saw what came to mind. So I did mine basically off the top of my head. I'm sure it's not comprehensive. I'm sure I'm missing a lot of things. You know, I have a good amount written down at least that I think we can, you know, I, I don't think I, I phoned it in really. It was just hard for me to conceptualize how to go about starting this. And I think generally speaking, we want to tell a story or we want to tell the story of sports over the last 20 years. And so you want to spread it out. And I'm going to read before we start in a minute, I'm going to read the list from the first of these Bob Costas books. And I know that might be a little bit tedious, but I want to just sort of give you an idea give the audience an idea of what what the moments were included on this type of list. I think the sort of maybe the most important thing is that you don't want to bunch it up too much. So, you know, at least for me, you weren't going to do, you know, eight New England Patriots moments or, you know, six mm. LeBron moments, that type of thing, because you want to kind of in your four dozen or so, you want to have room for enough. And I like you as and I especially benefiting from the love of the Olympics that my wife Allison has uh, in watching the Olympics the last week or two. She's been suggesting a number of them to me, and um, many of whom I many of whom I accepted. A few of them I had to tell her were a little too obscure. I think the other thing is that we want to kind of. It sort of has to be something that, at least for me, that made its way into the national consciousness. So. We, in talking about this, she said, well, I don't remember which one of us brought it up, but we, and we've done an episode on BU hockey in the past where BU hockey against Miami of Ohio in 2001, they were down three to one in the championship game with like 40 seconds left and had pulled their goalie and they scored two goals to tie it up and then a goal in overtime to win the national championship. And this was something that was known. It was on ESPN. It wasn't like this was just something that happened, but nobody knew about it. Nobody talked about it the next day outside of maybe the Boston area. So it had to be to me something that even if it was in a sport that maybe doesn't necessarily always get the attention, it had to be something that sort of pierced the public consciousness for me. Yeah. And I think that's a good answer. And, and that was a, a sort of complicating factor I wanted to talk about with this, which is that you don't have historical, uh, so you you don't really have the benefit of which things have stood the test of time. Most people would consider one of, if not the most famous baseball moment of all time to be the shot heard around the world, the 1951 three game playoff between the giants and Dodgers. I, it's, it's a famous, famous moment because it stood the test of time. You know what I mean? True. There have True. been other one game playoffs. There have been other, um, you know, walk off home runs in postseason series or things to tie. And certainly one of the reasons it stood the test of time is because of all these factors that went into that game. But we're able to quantify that now, given that it was 70 years, you know, 70 years later, people still know what it is. You don't have a lot of the benefit with that here. There are moments that probably won't be on this list for that very reason that people have, would have said in 2008, 2009, whatever, like, oh, the people will be talking about this forever. And a couple of years later, it's not as well known. Tougher to not have all of this sort of um, will, will future generations care about this kind of thing, you know? 
Totally. All right, let me just read through the list from the first book by Garner and Costas called And the Crowd Goes Wild, because I think it gives an idea of what we're thinking sort of going to the framework from this. So there's about 50 of these, and I'll just read through them. Babe Ruth calls his shot. Jesse Owens wins four gold medals. Joe Lewis knocks out Max Schmeling. Lou Gehrig says goodbye. Bobby Thompson hits the shot heard around the world. Don Larson throws World Series perfect game. The greatest game ever played, Colts versus Giants. Wilma Rudolph sprints to Olympic gold. That's the 1960 Olympics. Ted Williams finishes career with home run. Bill Mazeroski home run wins World Series. Wilt Chamberlain scores 100 points. Billy Mills wins 10,000 meter gold in the 64 Olympics. Havlicek steals, clinches Celtics victory. Green Bay Packers win the ice bowl. Bob Beeman soars to long jump record. Joe Namath and underdog Jets win Super Bowl three. Miracle Mets win World Series. Willis Reed leads Knicks to victory. Mark Spitz wins record seven gold medals. U.S. Olympic men's basketball team upset by Soviets. That's 1972. The Immaculate Reception. Secretariat wins the Triple Crown. Billie Jean King wins the Battle of the Sexes. Henry Aaron breaks the home run record. Muhammad Ali, three-time heavyweight champion. That's not a moment. Oh, I guess are they saying the moment he won the third championship? No, it's sort of a look at his career. That's a cop out. They cheated a little bit there, and there's going to be one where I think I want to cheat for ours. So that's um, th- that's that's informative, I think. As long as the referee's back is turned. <laughs> Carlton Fisk waves World Series home run fair. Nadia Comaneci scores a perfect ten. Johnson versus Bird in the NCAA championship. U.S. hockey defeats the Soviet Union, Miracle on Ice. Bjorn Borg defeats John McEnroe at Wimbledon. The Catch, 49ers versus Cowboys. Gordon Johncock wins the 1982 Indianapolis 500. The Play, Cal versus Stanford. That's the famous band on the field. NC State upsets Houston, 83 uh, basketball. Richard Petty wins 200th career race. Boston College beats Miami on Hail Mary Pass. It's Flutie. Jack Nicholas wins Masters at age 46. Dodgers win on Kirk Gibson home run. Buster Douglas upsets Mike Tyson. Carl Lewis anchors U.S. Olympic victory, 92 Olympics in Barcelona. Wayne Gretzky captures NHL scoring mark. Rangers win the Stanley Cup in 94. Tiger Woods wins the Masters in 97. Michael Jordan wins the sixth NBA championship. France wins World Cup on home soil, 98. Maguire smashes the home run record, 98. And then the U.S. women win World Cup soccer. So that's 48 moments. And the reason I read that is because I think it's sort of the focus is on sort of the big three, Mm -hmm. baseball, basketball, football. But there's room for Olympics, NASCAR, hockey, soccer, you know, tennis, golf, whatever. And there's also room, I feel like, without overdoing it, for a few moments that don't have any immediate American nexus, whether that's France winning the World Cup in 98, whether that's Nadia Comaneci, who was, I believe, Romanian, um, uh, scoring a perfect 10 in gymnastics. So the, at least from my way of thinking, I don't know if you agree, it's not even... We're not going to consider everything even, but there's room for some of this other stuff to to float in there yeah. here and there. 
And we, and we should be honest about the fact we're probably not going to do a good job with that. We're going to come to this from our perspective, which is Americans, primarily basketball, baseball, football fans, primarily pro. That doesn't mean that we're not going to try. We're not going to, we're not going to, we're obviously there's going to be college football things that need to be on here and college basketball things and Olympic things, but we will probably miss some stuff that somebody who came to it from a different perspective would get. So that's, I feel like that's a necessary caveat. Just like, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to do this with the acknowledgement of our sort of biases and perspectives very much factoring in. It's the same reason they, you know, we do an episode about the 1990s Baltimore Orioles with my friend Mike, and a lot of it is about the 1990s Yankees because that's how we relate to it. All right. So why don't we go ahead and get started? And I think what we're going to do is we're going to start with the big three and then we'll kind of take it from there. And where, what sport do you want to start with first? Let me see where my lists are. And like I said, they started out all over the place and then I tried to be a little more compact with them. I don't know. Do you want to start with football? Let's start with football. And I also should note, maybe once we get a little further into this, I just have a note full of paper here. I have a lot of things that I wrote down. And as I'm looking at it, I don't know entirely what I'm referring to with some of these Olympics and stuff. So we may have to do a little bit of on the fly looking into these things. So, but anyway, you want to start with football. Yeah, let's start and let's start with pro football, I guess, just, you know, that obviously I would think. And then maybe we do college football after pro and then go to baseball or whatever. Works for me. Do you want to go through your football list? What what were this? What what did you have for football? I think I had I had four football moments. See, I I I didn't do this with like any number in mind. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to have to go through some pages, but I'll, I'll read some football ones I have listed here and then you know, get your reaction to whatever. I, I didn't come up with like, oh, I can only have 20 of these. So, oh, nor did I. I just okay. I happened to have four football. All right. So the first thing I have on my list, and these will not remain in order, but these this one is in order, is actually from six days into the 21st century. And that was the Music City Miracle, Tennessee over Buffalo in the playoff. Frank Wycheck pass across the field on the kick return in the wild card playoffs. It was actually the 1999 wild card playoffs, but took place in January of 2000. I also listed the Saints Vikings Minneapolis miracle, the mm-hmm. divisional playoff game where the Vikings had the very last chance with the Hail Mary that they then could have gotten out of bounds on. They did not get out of bounds on, per- ended up scoring the touchdown, and they won that. So I listed that there. I won't give a ton of context on these. I'll just kind of plow through them. 2006, the Saints returning to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina on the Monday night against the Falcons. It was a you know huge show, and they had a bunch of people there. I had the Patriots-Falcons Super Bowl overtime, 28-3. Falcons were up at one point. That was also the first over, uh, Super Bowl that ever went into overtime. So I had that. Then I started getting into some different teams, so some of these will seem like a drop-off. I had the Odell Beckham catch on here is worth talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in terms of the highlight, maybe my Giants bias shows a little bit there, especially in a game they did lose, but we're also in a highlight culture now. So that play became an instant cultural thing. And you, and you, some of these, you know, you have something like the Willie Mays catch on a previous. Now, obviously, it wasn't in a World Series, but it was on a Monday night game against the Cowboys. So I can, I can get that. I can get that. The, I believe it was Sunday night, but the Marshawn right. Lynch Sunday night. East, I'm sorry. East Quake in overtime uh, against the 
Um, who would that have been against? I forget who it was even against. I think it was against the Saints, the play that registered on the Richter scale. Patriots, Seahawks, the Super Bowl interception at the very end of the game. Obviously, the David Tyree catch in 2007. Giants winning. The, I mean, if you wanted to be a little bit broader, you could just say the Giants winning Super Bowl 42 over the 18 and 0 Patriots. That's how I had it too. I had the Giants winning 42 over the Patriots. So yeah, either or, but that definitely makes it on the list. And then just a couple more I'll talk about. The lights go out at the Super Bowl. Saints, Ravens, or excuse me, uh, Ravens 49ers. Ravens, yeah. Yep. The lights go out at the New Orleans Superdome. I have the tuck rule game here. The tuck rule play Raiders, Patriots in the 01 divisional playoffs. And then my final football one, I'm sure I missed a couple on my list here, but the final football one I want to touch on. And there's no doubting, you know, you talked about, did this enter, enter the cultural awareness? Thanksgiving night, I believe 2012. The butt fumble. The butt fumble. Mm, yeah, so, I can see that. Now, again, if I had a list of five, would that be on there? No, but those are some of my football ones. You do have one glaring omission, I think, that I think has to be on there. I'm positive I do, yeah. But one in specific that I, I doubt you didn't think of it. Maybe you didn't, but I'm wondering if this is a little bit of... Oh, the uh, second miracle at the Meadowlands? No, I think the Philly special. Yeah, you're, you're right. I, I, I guess that does. Team hadn't won a championship in almost 60 years, and that crazy play, you know, the Philly special play, to me, I feel like that has to be on the list. It probably does, because you also have to remember, like, you know, the tw- when you talk about moments of the 20th century in... In 20th century sports, you talk about, you know, things that were also objectively bad. And this was objectively <laughs> bad. So I, I will I will agree with that. So you're right. It, it should be on there. Cool. Yeah. No, I mean, you, you definitely you had more than I did, I think. And like I said, we don't necessarily have to come up with a. A definitive list. The ones of yours that I would definitely take Music City Mi- Miracle, no question. Uh, the Minneapolis Miracle. Absolutely. Actually, I should note that. Not that I expected you or anybody listening to adhere to this with their list. I sort of, with these two books, I started when those books ended. And the second one of those was actually published in like late 2000. So it had the Music City Miracle in it. So that was why that wasn't on my list. But yeah, that, if you're talking just 20th cent, 21st century, that definitely belongs on there. And I just, in my head, I was also thinking like, oh, if we did like a chronological, if this was a mm-hmm. chronological thing, you'd be like, we begin with our first moment just six days after the 20th century, mm-hmm. 21st century began. I like that. I definitely have the 07 Super Bowl. I, I had the 28-3 game. I had the Philly special, like I mentioned. I sort of just try again, trying to not select a ton of moments, similar moments from the same time period. I went with the 28-3 comeback Mm. over the Seahawks game. Sure. If it had been different teams winning, I probably would have had both of those on my list. But I just kind of figured that. Well, and and one additional complication with football in this era was – like ones I, I and I listed more than you ones I didn't even list like, you know, OK, so we had the 07 Giants on there. The 08 Super Bowl is, is a great Super Bowl. The Cardinals against the Steelers. Yeah, I then thought about whole, that, too. Yeah, the whole thing with the Saints the next year winning the Super Bowl, you know, a couple of years after Katrina. There have been a lot of great Super Bowls in the last 20 years. So you just you can't, you know, 
I didn't want to list 12 different Super Bowls on my list, you know, so. The other thing I thought about including, which was not a, a big, maybe not a championship moment, was when Brett Favre came back, uh, didn't come back, but when he, um, when his father died and he had that amazing game, I think it was against Oakland. It was. On, yeah. I was, I was that on a Monday night, I think. Yeah, and the reason I know that is when I went to Lambeau a few years ago on the bus, we the like tour bus we were on from Milwaukee. That was the game they played on our way up. That's great. And then the only other, I kind of was torn. I was going back and forth about which was the bigger moment for the Pats in 01, whether it was beating the Rams in that Super Bowl with the Vinatieri kick in a game nobody thought they would win or the tuck rule game. And I think like you, I went with the tuck rule game kind of for the uniqueness of it. Which one have you seen more highlights of in the last 20 years? The tuck rule game. There's something about big football moments in the snow that are always going to make their way onto a highlight reel whenever anybody possibly can. Yeah. The Leon let play and yeah. All right. So that's, uh, I think we got football pretty well covered pro football. Now, again, with college football, I had I had two college football moments that I had, had jotted down here, and I want to see see what you have. So do you want to, do you want to give me your thoughts on uh, college football? 2006 Rose Bowl, Texas against USC. That was uh, the first one I had, too. That was Vince Young had an amazing game, right? And that was the height of the dynasty, the USC, Reggie Bush, Matt Weiner, Pete Carroll teams, you know, that were considered unbeatable essentially and i remember the beginning of that game texas was was getting outclassed and i was thinking like yeah they just you know whatever and then vince young took them on their back and then the next year the game i have and this didn't this was just a bowl game this didn't have um what you're saying is that the 06 rose bowl was the national championship game yeah yeah the 06 rose bowl was the national championship game 07 this was just a game that was fun this was a, a the band is on the field kind of thing and that was the Fiesta Bowl between Boise State and Oklahoma. This was mm-hmm. New Year's Day of 07. And that was the game with the, that ended with the Statue of Liberty play that Boise okay. State scored. And it was the game where there were like 10 touchdowns in the fourth quarter. It was like, if you turned it off, I, I always tell the story of, I turned it off for a minute with Boise State up seven. I was playing PlayStation on my computer or on my TV in my parents' uh, living room. Because I was, you know, I was in college. I was home on a break. I turned it back on and Boise State was up seven again. And I was like, oh, I didn't miss anything. I had missed a touchdown from each team in five minutes. It took me a second to realize what it I was like. Oh, no, they're up seven. But like they both have scored since the last time I checked this. And the time it took me to have one PlayStation wrestling match, each team scored two touchdowns. Wow. Yeah, I'm not going to say I'm super familiar with that game, but it definitely sounds like one that merits merits and it, and some consideration it ended with boise state running the statue of liberty play with the where the guy fakes the throw and hands the ball behind and the running back takes it from behind the quarterback's back mm-hmm. so i'll pull up the details on that but what was your other moment well i was gonna first of all just to go back to 06 also i think it's worth noting that that 06 usc texas game was also the last game ever broadcast by keith jackson who was oh, okay. a legendary football and also did some baseball. He was actually the play-by-play guy when Chris Chambliss hit his home run in 1976. So he was, you know, f- famous. The ABC. Wasn't he the, wasn't he the first Monday night guy for a year or two? Yeah, he was. Your, that's right. In, I think in 1970, he was the first Monday night guy. So a really well-known broadcaster. And that was, he, you know, since passed away. That was the last game he ever did. So it's worth including, including for that reason. 
The other game I had was the Iron Bowl. 2013, Auburn and Alabama, and something that was known as the Kick Six. I want to read here a little bit about it. The game was tied 28-28 with uh, 32 seconds remaining. Alabama quickly moved to the Auburn 38-yard line, at which point the clock ran out, seemingly sending the game into overtime. And Nick Saban, the Alabama coach, challenges the timekeeping, and they put one second left on the clock. Alabama tries a field goal, which is short, and Chris Davis from Auburn picks it up at the goal line and runs uh, about 109 yards all the way to the end zone to win the iron ball. And this is, you know, like you have throughout college football, especially in the South and Midwest. This is one of those late-in-the-season rivalry games between two teams that have been rivals forever. Whenever a regular season game has a name like the Iron Bowl, you know it's really important to the fans and the school. So that was the other game that I had in there, the other moment I had for college football. That Oklahoma-Boise State game. was Oklahoma, Boise State actually had a 28-10 lead at one point. Oklahoma scored towards the end of the third quarter to make it 28-17. And then in the fourth quarter, Oklahoma scored, kicked a field goal three seconds into the fourth to cut it to eight. Then they scored with a minute and 26 left. They scored to make it 28-28. to Oklahoma scored again on a pick six a, few play, uh, a couple of plays later to go up 35-28. So they'd scored 25 straight points. So with a minute and two left, they had the lead. Then Boise State scored with seven seconds left. It went to overtime. Oklahoma scored and kicked the extra point on their first possession in overtime. Boise State scored to make it 42 to 41. They went for two. This was before they had to go for two. That would have been like the third overtime. They ran the Statue of Liberty play and won 43 to 42. Wow. So just action. Absolutely. Did you have anything else for college football? Not that I could think of. If I was going to be a total homer, I would go to 2015 and talk about Army ending their 14-year uh, losing streak to, I guess it would have been 26, 19. I guess it would have been 2016 when Army ended their 15-year losing streak, 14-year losing streak to Navy. I would put that on there, but that doesn't really justifiably rise to that level. It's funny, Allison and I, uh, when we were talking about this, she thought you would put that on. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I wouldn't actually put it on, but it, you know. Bears it, it, mentioning. Yes. Do you want to do baseball next? Sure, let's do baseball next. All right, let, let, me, ha- let me give you my list for, for baseball, because I had more for baseball. Baseball, in a lot of ways, lends itself better because you get you know walk-off hits, walk-off home runs, that type of thing. So I had, try and go roughly in chronological order here, I had Barry Bonds breaking the single-season home run record in 2001. Mm-hmm. I had the Diamondbacks winning the 01 World Series on the walk-off hit by Luis Gonzalez off Rivera. I had the Aaron Boone game. I had the 04 Red Sox winning the World Series. I had the 2010 Giants breaking their drought and winning the World Series. That was the one I was probably the least confident in, so I feel like if one of them had to be knocked off for one reason or another, that was kind of my last one. I had 2011, I had the Cardinals in Game 6. Yeah, so the 2011 Game 6, I I don't know what the deficit was that they came back from. I'm just kind of seeing the final score was 10 to 9. And so it looks like, okay, so they were down 3. The the Cardinals, bottom of the 8th, 
down three runs and David Freeze had uh, both the home run and I think he also did Freeze have the game winning hit in that game also I think yeah um, they were down to their last strike twice in that game yes I'm looking here David Freeze and Lance Berkman became the third and fourth players in World Series history to get game tying hits with their team one out from elimination. So yeah, they were one out from elimination in the bottom of the ninth. And then they were once again, one out from elimination in the bottom of the 10th. So they came back twice. They were down two runs going into the bottom of the 10th and two runs going into the bottom of the ninth. So I think because it's the Cardinals and the Rangers and two teams that didn't really do a lot before or after they were both, they both lost world series, but it wasn't like they were dynasties or it wasn't big moments or anything, or, you know, big stories like the Cubs a few years later, it wasn't like a big world series drought for the Cardinals. But if you're talking about just like amazing on the field baseball, that's one of the best baseball games of the last 20 or 25 years. Yeah, I would agree with that. And then I had the, uh, the only other one I had was the 16 Cubs, which I think that goes without saying that has to be on that. If, if you're only going to pick one moment, well, it might be the Red Sox, one of the two, but th- so those are my baseball. Yeah. I, I think the 16 Cubs that, and that whole game seven with the Indians who had their own drought. And uh, I think the Indians were up three to one in that series. And then the rain delay, know, the rain delay, right. Is like the cut. The Indians had like tied it up or were, you know, about to tie it up or, or whatever. Yeah. That def that definitely goes on there. All right. I'm sorry, folks. We're having a, our share. Andrew is having some technical difficulties, and then I'm having some dog difficulties, so we'll try and cut as much about, of this out as possible. But you might get some residual unprofessionalism uh, on this part of the episode. <laughs> but, yeah, the 16 Cubs, big game, big win. Obviously, you know, team hadn't won in, what, 108 years. So that has to be on there. 04 Red Sox has to be on there. So that that's my moment. I feel like you get a good mix of – big team and franchise moments. And then also just some just really good solid baseball moments. Yeah. Some other ones I could throw out there as I'm looking at this, a lot of these are really bad negative things, but um, I have the Oh three, the Steve Bartman game. Yeah. That's, that's almost got to be on there too. Maybe, maybe if you're doing a chapter, you just kind of include that as part of the 16 Cubs, but no question. Hmm. Uh, You could also talk about baseball returning to Washington, DC in 2005 mm-hmm. as a moment uh, after, you know, 40 plus years or around 40 years of, of not being there. I hope you're not um, including that as one of your bad moments. No, 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 no. The, I have this and I, I had almost forgotten about this and I, I guess it doesn't really belong on the list, but it was certainly on the thing with the Royals and the White Sox where the fans, the father and son ran out onto the field and started beating up the first base coach. That was certainly. That <laughs> you probably don't need of, to include that, but yeah. No, but no, it was. It it's was memorable. It was memorable, yeah. And then another one that was, speaking of memorable, and find me a real precedent for this. The 07 Yankees Indians Midges playoff game. Mm, yeah. Where suddenly Java Chamberlain's face is covered in bugs and it's affecting the way. Like, you've never seen that before. Like, that's that's unique. Joe Torre always said that his biggest regret as a manager was not pulling his team off the field in that game. Yeah, and, and he should have. So that was just a few more baseball moments. I mean, obviously the, the two droughts ending. And I mean, it, it probably, there's reasons for it, but we should, I mean, if we're going to mention two droughts ending, we should mention the White Sox drought ending as well. It's not on the same level. If you're a White Sox fan, you could ask why it's not on the same level as like the Red Sox one. It's just not. I don't know why, but it's just not whole lot of drama in the way they wanted either so 
I think the two reasons really are number one, the White Sox, unlike the Red Sox, just hadn't come close so many times. The Red Sox lost four seven-game World Series in 46, 67, 75, and 86, all of which were super memorable World Series. So that's the reason, because the White Sox, they weren't even in a World Series. They were only in from, from, from 17 when they won. Then they lost in 19 on purpose. And then they were in it in 59, and then not again till 05. So... Incidentally, the 59 White Sox is a topic of an upcoming uh, listener-requested Hello Old Sports podcast. Oh, and I, I have one more in a different section here that I should touch on. This wouldn't go on like the greatest list, but it certainly is the 2010 Armando Galarrago near-perfect game. With where, the one where the, the play at first and mm-hmm. the umpire comes out and apologizes to him the next day for blowing the call. Jim Joyce, yeah, for blowing the call and, you know, and then he gets whatever. I don't know if there was one out or two outs in that inning, but he gets the rest of the, gets out of the rest of the inning and it should have been a perfect game. Yeah. And probably led to not directly, but is one of the reasons we have replay these days. I would also put in the, the steroid hearings in probably the ones in Oh five, no Oh four rather in the Senate with um, Selig and fear. Mm-hmm. Not the one that they had a year later, where it was with all the players and Jose Canseco sat next to Mark McGuire, and McGuire looked like he wanted to strangle him. And Sammy Sosa, after twenty years of giving interviews, suddenly didn't understand English anymore. And but the ones the year before that in two thousand four, which were chaired by John McCain, that really kind of brought the whole issue into the forefront. So I would put those on the list too. Again, if you're kind of telling the story. Fair enough. I agree. I'm assuming that you don't have anything sort of anywhere else in the baseball realm. That is to say college football or college baseball or anything like that. So I didn't have anything on my list, but as you're talking, I realized one that and this again goes to the hindsight thing, but probably should be on the list. And that is, Last May or June, I think it was, when the KBO becomes the first professional sport to come back post COVID, because mm-hmm. it got it was on ESPN, it was on national, you know, it was a, a not a I don't want to say it was a big deal, but like games being played in the middle of the night, people, you know, I remember picking a team, and you know, I didn't really stick with it to be honest. Once, <laughs> once pro baseball came back, it also didn't help that the team I like. Once you know the major leagues in this country came back, it also didn't help that the team I picked started out like one in ten, and I was like, oh, "This isn't very fun." But um, you know, if, if for baseball as a sport, I feel like I would mention that the World Baseball Classic didn't rise to the relevance enough to be considered. The only other thing that I think maybe you would bear mentioning and this is going back now this is like exactly 20 years ago now and i think maybe because we were in new york it maybe seemed like a bigger deal do you know where i'm going with this subway series no 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 no. i was actually clemens piazza stuff no and actually well there's a moment that we do have to bring up as to why neither one of us are including it because it was mentioned by our former guest co-host uh your good friend mike petty on our facebook page but that's actually not what I was going to bring up. I was actually going to bring up Danny Almonte. <laughs> I mean, hey, that was a huge story in sports for a couple of weeks. And for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about. Was that this was, post-2000? That was 2001. 
Oh, I for some reason I thought that was the nineties. No, it was the summer before I went to college. It was basically this little league team from the Bronx had this dominant pitcher, Danny Almonte, who and they kind of kind of took the heart of the nation for a couple of weeks, and then it later came out that Almonte was, I think, either fourteen or fifteen. And so there was, you know, that was a big controversy, and especially in sort of the dead days of July and August in sports when there's not a hell of a lot else going on. It was a pretty big controversy. I guess we could also talk about, you know, if you're going back that far and it's like you mentioned the New York focus, I've personally become a little tired of hearing about it, but all the post 9-11 baseball stuff, Bush throwing out the first pitch at the World Series, uh, the Mike Piazza home run and the Mets first game back, you know, whatever that was 10 days later or something like that. Well, here's where I have to get two different things. I think that when we talk about the 2000 World Series and you know, and this is maybe my talk about, you know, when I'm talking about kind of like viewing this as a potentially like, you know, like a book type of thing where you're taking chapter by chapter in talking about the Diamondbacks winning the old one world series. I think you also would talk about the, you know, president Bush throwing out the first pitch, which was such a huge moment and sort of galvanizing for the country. And obviously from a baseball point of view, you talk about those two amazing Yankee comebacks in game four and game five. So to me, that, is a really big deal sort of all within the rubric of the 01 world series. I find, and I want to be really careful how I say this. I find the Piazza home run to be very overrated as either a sports or a cultural moment. I didn't really remember that until maybe the 2011. And I mean, some of it I'm sure is coming from being a Yankee fan and whatever, but I, I didn't really remember that until people started talking about it at the 10 year anniversary of nine 11 and 2011. The, the, the issue I get with a lot of this stuff. And again, I want to be careful is when people start to talk about, Oh, and it started to heal the name. No, there was still a lot of people dead. There was still a lot of, you know, they were still down at ground zero going through rubble and looking for bodies and things like that. Like I think too often a couple of some of these moments, especially around nine 11 get reduced to like, and the nation began to heal feel good stories. And it's like, no, they were just sports moments that happened around then that yes, there's some ties when you're talking about New York or things like that. But I tend to reflexively pull back a little on some of that. Cause I feel like it's, there's almost an inherent agenda baked into some of that stuff. I can't help feel. I would push back on that only slightly. And that I think that for New York, having the Yankees who were the team in New York, having them sort of continually win in dramatic fashion in that postseason, though, whether it was the Jeter flip game whether it was beating the, you know, 116 win Mariner team, which, you know, they were obviously the underdogs in that series. And then, you know, putting aside everything else, those two nights in a row where they beat the Diamondbacks on walk-offs two nights in a row when they were barely hitting the ball, it was so dramatic for them to be winning like that, that I do think it made a certain segment of people in New York feel like they had something to feel good about for the first time in, you know, since nine 11. So I don't think it changed what happened or anybody's thoughts on what happened, but that's like one of the few areas where I look at it and say, okay, I get how this 
was meaningful for people in New York, myself included, during those couple of weeks. That said, I just can't go there with the Piazza home run. I mean, what did it mean? I think, too, and and again, we're going to – there's always got to be like, well, we're Mets fans, and we had one, too. And it's like, no, you didn't. The Yankees – you can tell the story of baseball in 2001 without – that's a Yankee story. And it seems like that got added in as like, well, Piazza hit that home run right after not, you know what I mean? Like, eh. yeah, no, it just, it didn't. Yeah. I couldn't, I, I can never get there with whenever people talk about that as like one of the great New York sports moments of the last, whatever number of years, I just, I just can't get there with that. Cause it didn't mean anything. Now, if the Mets had won the pennant that year or had won the division, which people forget, they almost did. They they had an amazing like three week run once they came back after 9-11 because they the season had been kind of given up for dead then they came back and they went on this amazing run i still remember watching a game on a saturday afternoon where both benitez and franco blew the game for the mets against the braves and i think if they had won that game they would have gone to like a game and a half back with a week and a half to play so long-winded way of saying had they actually done something that season maybe that would have been meaningful but just one home run in a regular season game i i don't see that how that's galvanizing even in the wake of 9-11 so mm. Yankees in 01 yes Piazza in 01 doesn't make it to that level for me sure so do we go to basketball next yeah we go to basketball why don't I give you my basketball because when we when we do hockey I might count on you to carry the load a little more, I don't have much of a hockey list <laughs> I don't either I only have two things and one of them I think might be sort of betraying how much time I've spent in Boston over the last 20 years. But my, my, my basketball list is actually relatively small too. I have, well, let me put it this way. If you only had to pick one moment, what would it be? Cause I'd have to imagine it's the same for both of us. One moment, 20th century basketball, 21st. Yeah. 21st century. And are you talking actual basketball? Like yes. on the court? Yeah. Um, well, I'm curious what your other would be, but go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I, I, how much do you want to talk about Kobe Bryant dying or... Yeah, or, to me, yeah. that's not really a sports moment because if he was still an active player, if it was like a Thurman Munson type of thing, I would put that on there, but... To- yeah, no, no, totally fair. Totally fair. Well, um, he died young. He died retired. So I know yeah. that sounds really callous, um, but yeah, I can't... To me, put- if I had to pick one, probably the Cavs winning the championship. Same here. Yeah, that was what I thought too. The other two that I had were the Ray Allen shot in the that would have been the 13 NBA finals when it was heat versus Spurs. And that was the game. Yeah. It was in Miami and all these Miami fans were leaving and Allen hit this crazy three point shot to, I believe did his shot send the game to overtime. I think that's what it was. I think that's what happened. Yeah, in they won six, in overtime. Right. And then they won in game seven. I believe that's right. I'll look that up. And then the only other thing I had was the Pistons upsetting the Lakers in 04 that's kind of gotten lost to history because the Pistons never won again. And that Laker team imploded after that when Shaq left. But, you know, a, a team with four Hall of Famers in the lineup for the Lakers, Peyton, Malone, O'Neal, and Bryant, that was that was sort of the first super team effort to try and win a championship. Yeah, you're missing a bunch. Okay. So, and I realize I have more than I should on here, but I'll... Kobe scores 81 points in a game in 2005. Yeah, I, I guess I can see that. Oh, no, 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 no. If it was in the 70s, it would be something anyone always people would be talking. 
he scored 81 points in a game. Yeah, no, I, I see your point. I guess to me, it's like, and this is maybe when I, where I was thinking more in the line of trying to keep my list to about 50, but yeah, it's definitely a big moment. Then we go into three straight LeBron ones, one of which we already kind of covered the title. I will throw the, the block that he made earlier in the series in as part of the title there. Yeah. I, w- I will include that. The decision when he yeah. left, when he left I would Cleveland. Put the de- I would put the decision on there, too. Again, I might include that as sort of part of the LeBron Cleveland story, but absolutely. Well, then you're probably going to consider my next one the same thing when he comes back to Cleveland. Uh, yeah, that's part of the same story to me. Okay. I don't have him leaving Cleveland for the Lakers. I, no. I, I, I didn't get that uh, granular. The Malice at the Palace absolutely has to be on the list. The Malice at the Palace is one of the most significant, memorable events. Not a positive one, but that's, yeah. mm-hmm. that, that goes on the list. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then a couple other basketball ones I have here. I, well, I, have, I have one listed here just as a point that it does not belong on this list, which is Iverson's step over in the finals against the Lakers in a game. They, you know, became that game became an iconic image, but it was not really an important moment. They won game one of that series and then lost four straight games. People make it again as an image and sort of a cultural thing and an, uh, a picture of who Allen Iverson was, but it people go a little far with that. And then the it, other it's two, only I, a big deal if you're a Philadelphia 76ers fan and the team really hasn't done anything in 40 years. Mm-hmm. But other than that, nationally, big picture, absolutely not. I, I agree. And then the other two I have, one of these is a big story because of who was involved, and that's when Michael Jordan returned to basketball with the Wizards. Yeah. Um, you know, again, would that be one of the two or three top moments? No, but it's Michael Jordan. It's, you know, he went out on top with the – getting away with an offensive foul against Byron Russ, Brian Russell. They win the title. He retires. The Bulls fall apart. And then five years later, he comes back to wear a teal uniform and play with the Wizards. And then the other one at the time was a big deal. It was even more of a big deal in hindsight. Do you have any guess what I'm talking about? Early in this, early in the time frame we're talking about. Are you talking about, because I just thought of this something that should be included, is the 15-point comeback in the fourth quarter with Shaq and Kobe of the Lakers against Portland? No. That's same era. Have. Same era. One of those same teams involved. <laughs> you probably guess it's not Portland. Um, 2002 Western Conference Finals. You know Lakers, what? You- Lakers-Kings game six. A game that I have never... It's the only time in my life I have watched a game and considered that it was probably not on the level. See, I was actually going to say something different. That's actually on my list. I, I the something from that Lakers Kings series. I have the the Robert Ory shot in what I think was Game Three, where where it got tipped back out. Where to Vladi Divac tries to kick it out to clear, and it goes right to Robert Ory, and Ory hits a three, and chances are the Kings win the series if they don't lose that no, game. No, no, because they, there were, they, the series was clearly fixed, so no, it wouldn't have mattered if the Kings had won game three. If they, uh, let me see what game that was. If they had gone up, I, I don't, they might have gone up 3-1 if they had won that. I don't think the NBA would have, first of all, I don't know if it was fixed. There was a referee who, Donahue was a referee in that game. Was he though? I th- I thought he just hold on, because now I'm kind of I'm curious about a couple different things. Um, Either way, that game was fixed. The referees were not going to allow the Kings to win that game. There was there was not a chance the referees were going to allow the Kings to win that game. 
I, I wish I could completely disagree. I'd have to watch that game again. One of our other former guests, uh, Ben Meyer Abbott from uh, California, my college roommate, he was a, he's a big Laker fan, and he one time made me sit down and watch that game and pointed out all the ways that he, you know, he felt it was officiated fairly. But I don't know. Um, th- th- there's something there, and you're right. The fact that Donahue was involved certainly get, lends credence to the whole thing. So I just want to look here. The well, and the thing, I guess the thing I say is I knew it at the time. It wasn't, this isn't hindsight. I didn't read this later. I remember watching that at the time and thinking that they are not letting the Kings win this game. So the Ori game was game four. And I don't know. I don't know that the league would have done anything to prevent three straight games from going to the Kings. Now, Obviously, it's possible that the Lakers win a couple on their own. It's not as if the only way they were going to win. I mean, they were the Kobe Shaq Lakers. It's not like the only way they were going to win was with the league's help. But I don't know if 3-1, the league would have been able to do things to enough things. Donahue was not a ref in that game. Yeah, I didn't think so. But he made accusations later. Yeah. After game six, Mike Wilbon, who everybody knows, says, I wrote down in my notebook six calls that were stunningly incorrect, all against Sacramento, all in the fourth quarter when the Lakers made five baskets and 21 foul shots to hold on there to their championship. And then there's a fame, and I had forgotten about this, but there's a famous play where Kobe, and I actually just finished reading a really good book by Jeff Perlman that's called Three Ring Circus, which is about those Laker teams, the Shaq-Kobe Laker teams. Great book, highly recommended. Hopefully he's got a He'll have a sequel out in a few years about the Nets called the No Ring Circus. (laughs) He very well might. There was a play in the fourth quarter where Kobe elbowed Mike Bibby. And everybody said, okay, this is a foul against Kobe or at worst a no call. And they called a foul on Mike Bibby. For getting elbowed in the face. Yeah. So I wish I I could disagree, but... uh, I don't know that I can. So, but just real quick though, I want to go back to, cause we are talking about the 13 finals. That was game six. The Spurs were up 94, 89 with 28 seconds left. LeBron misses a three ball gets tipped around and James hits a three to pull it within two with 20 seconds left. Kawhi misses one of two free throws Miami comes down. LeBron misses a three. Bosch rebounds, passes it out to Ray Allen, who hits the shot to tie the game with five seconds left in, in regulation and then send the game to overtime. So, And then the, the Heat go on to win it in overtime and then win the following night, uh, the following game as well. So, yeah, I think that, that that moment belongs on there. And obviously, you know, all the Lakers and Kings stuff is very, very interesting. But I think that's... That's all I had for the NBA. Did do we want to do we want to talk college basketball for a few minutes here? Yeah, let's do college basketball. All right. So the first thing I have is a very selfish moment, but I no, think it has to be inclu- it has to be included on there. Oh yeah. Which is eighteen in Charlotte, North Carolina, the uh, one sixteen upset of the uh, UMBC defeating University of Virginia in the first round, the first time a 16 had ever upset a one seed and hasn't happened in the few years since. And I was lucky enough to be in attendance with my good friend, Dan Tappan. We, it was the fourth game of the night. 
the way it works is you go in, you go to two games and there's a little bit of break. They kick everybody out of the arena. You go get dinner or whatever. And then you come back for two more games. And we had gone to the, the third game. And then at the beginning of the fourth game, we, we turned to our, each other and said, we are driving back to his, his place, which was like almost two hours away in, in North Carolina. And he was like, do you want to stick around for the fourth game or do you want to head back? And we were like, why don't we stay until halftime and see how we feel? And then, UMBC, the big thing. Yeah, if, if it's forty-seven to eighteen at halftime, you, you've seen enough. You're beating the traffic. You've watched three and a half basketball games that day. UMBC, sort of the hallmark of that game, and this was Andrews always said this actually about how in some of these early NCAA matchups, about how at a certain point you can tell the good team has just had enough, and it's just like, all right, we're we're gonna put the pedal to the metal and win, and what happened in that game that doesn't usually happen in these games is that UMBC just kept hitting threes. Mm. They just, they, at a certain point, it's always like, okay, they're going to stop hitting threes. They're going to stop hitting threes, but that didn't happen. They just kept hitting shots and actually ended up winning. I think the final score, I think UMBC beat Virginia by like 20. Yeah. Because they, they just didn't stop. And I think you at UVA made a run, but the run didn't get, the run didn't get close enough to scare UMBC because that's a thing you'll see in a lot of these games too, like 16-1s, 15-2s, whatever. Once they get to six or seven or, or a little, it's like, okay, well, now the other team's panicking. And they're right to panic, and then you can kind of take over. But there was never a pro- – and, and also it goes to UVA's style, which was not – they didn't play like a typical one-seed did. They had a lot of like attrition. They basically, they won low scoring games, which like you said, is not the way top teams usually win. So, yeah. And I mean, again, credit to UVA because they came back and won the national championship the next year. So it's not like, oh, they was a fundamental flaw in the way they were built. But um, yeah, it was the stuff that usually happens in one 16 games where the 16 seed is flirting with an upset for a little while just did not happen in this game. Okay, I had the five overtime game in, I think it was 2009 in the Big East tournament. That was six overtime game. Six. That was Syracuse and UConn. That's what I had on my list, yep. So, yeah, Syracuse-UConn, six overtimes in 2009 in the Big East tournament at Madison Square Garden. Yes, that was uh, also happened to be, obviously didn't know it at the time, but in the sort of, waning days of the old Big East, too. Yeah. Yeah, neither one of those teams is in the Big East. And, well, UConn, no, UConn still is. Well, they're back. They weren't, they're not still is, they're back. They is were that in right? The a- they were in the AAC for a very long time because of football. And then they, I think as of actually this past year, they decided, you know, this is killing us. So they went to, they want, they went to the Big East for basketball the AAC predictably threw them out for everything else. So now they're an independent for football. So, cause there is no biggies basketball. So yeah, so, there is no biggies football, excuse me. Six overtimes, two legendary coaches, Jim Beheim and Jim Calhoun. And I don't think neither team ended up doing anything of note in 2009, but just based on what it is and where it was, the biggies tournament still a very big deal in college basketball. I think that definitely merits some inclusion on the list. Yes, absolutely. Other college basketball ones, I did, I think you have to put Butler's run in 2010 
to the NCAA championship game in there. They they actually did it the next year as well. But in 2010, they went all the way to the final. They played Duke. They lost at the end. I know we watched, I was still living in DC at the time and we watched this game. And I, I will claim credit that I noticed this before the TV replay even noticed it, which is Duke had the lead. Butler inbounds it at the very end. The guy kind of throws up a three-quarter court shot that almost goes in. And then mm-hmm. they're, you know, right away they're going, oh, and and you know, Duke is a national champion. And I was like, that shot almost went in. And then <laughs> after like 10 seconds, they went to a replay and they were like, Wow, he got this off in time and that shot almost went in. So that would have been the first thing. If it had that shot gone in, that's the first thing we're talking about in this college basketball block on this yes. list. And one other one I have to talk about. UConn women, when their winning streak ended, when they were beaten in the final four by Mississippi State. Um, and I remember it was actually the next I was dri- the next morning I was driving to Boston to go watch WrestleMania, WrestleMania in your house. Yep. And I remember yeah. listening to the coverage on ESPN radio talking about Mississippi State. It was a hundred and eleven game winning streak for UConn, stretching back to twenty fourteen, and they lost in the final four of what would have been twenty sixteen, I guess. Seventeen. Uh, seventeen, twenty seventeen. And you know, they were they didn't just beat teams. They were they were dream team level dominant. And them losing that game was a huge deal. So, so I had a couple others, both sort of from the early part of the century. Not the Southwest Philly floater. Not the Southwest Philly floater. I think if we're going to have a LaSalle basketball, first of all, we've talked plenty of LaSalle basketball on this podcast, so I don't think we need to feel bad about not getting into too much detail. I feel like if we're not going to have BU hockey in 2009, we, we can't have a Sweet 16 LaSalle matchup in 2000 and. 13 cousin burn will be upset, but we'll deal with it. <laughs> so the other two things I had, one of these is really early, but I think you have to talk about the firing of Bobby Knight in 2000. I did not put the Paterno scandal on there because that was just so much, not really about football, but I think we're the Bobby Knight thing. I think oh, yeah, yeah. that, that belongs, I think. And then the other thing is, and I claim no expertise whatsoever in this particular field, but I feel like it might be a little bit unfair to the UConn women to only have a losing moment on there for them when they won so much. No, you're absolutely correct. You're so right. the other thing I had was actually 03 when the UConn men and women won national championships in back-to-back days, which as far yeah. as I know is the only time that's ever happened. So Oh yeah, that's that. And that you're you're right. You're absolutely right. I, even as I was kind of reading that, I'm like, yeah, it's a little bit unfair to them, but I I didn't even have it on my list. I just kind of came up with it in the spur of the moment. Oh yeah, we should really have the Yukon women on there. But no, you're 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 absolutely right. All right. Uh have we covered basketball? Do you want to go hockey next? Yeah, I'm trying to think there's there wouldn't be any other basketball internationally or anything like that. The only other well if we met, wanted to mention something with the Olympics, I feel like we'll be talking about the Olympics in a little bit. So, I feel like 04 when the Americans lost is probably the only real, you know? Yeah, I mean, the Redeem Team gold medal game against China at least gets a mention, but... Especially because that would have been in China, right? Because that was 08? Yeah. Yeah. I can and see they, that. you know, all the guys went and then they got challenged. Like, they, you know, they kind of run through the most of the tournament... And then the gold medal game, they were getting challenged a little bit, at least in the first half or so. And I just remember thinking, like, oh, it's good. They're they're having to push a little bit. That's kind of cool that they have to push a little bit. All right. Why don't we do hockey and then we can mm. sort of have a conversation about where we want to 
focus on next, but why don't we, why don't we try and bang out hockey here? Okay. You know, I think if you're talking about hockey, the main story from hockey in the last 20, 21 years is the 04, 05 season being canceled. Mm -hmm. I feel like you do have to put that on there. I don't know. Like, and again, I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm giving it short shrift. I just don't know that I have enough expertise on it. Blackhawks winning a championship and then winning two more after having not won for so long at being sort of an original six team that was a, I, I, I guess you maybe put the Blackhawks dynasty in some form on there. The one thing that I had on there was something called the phantom goal, which was the Blackhawks in 2010. And it was a goal by Patrick Kane. And I just want to pull up the summary here. Phil, uh, Philly between the Flyers and the Blackhawks. Game six overtime, tied 3-3 at the end of the third period. Patrick Kane scored the cup-winning goal at 4.06 into the overtime period, a shot in which the puck crossed the goal line and then got stuck underneath the padding in the back of the net. And uh, most people had originally lost sight of the puck. Only Kane and one of their teammates started to celebrate immediately. And the goal was not awarded until after a video review. So some people have called it the phantom goal. So I think... Overtime game, Patrick Kane, who's a you know pretty big star for the Blackhawks in the NHL, and the fact that they had had an almost 50-year drought, that was the one kind of on-ice hockey moment. And I don't really feel like it's just the fact that you and I aren't hockey aficionados. The, even in looking, I just, it didn't seem to be a lot of huge NHL moments. I'm sure hardcore hockey people could come up with some stuff, but nothing else really jumped out at me. I guess the other one I would add... 2008, the first winter classic. Yeah. Pittsburgh against Buffalo. Not just, you know, in just because of what that meant, you know, that's now mm. the NHL signature. I, I will wager that if there are people who only watch one hockey game a year, it's the winter classic. Obviously I'm not saying it's as big a deal as the Stanley cup finals and that kind of thing, but it's become in a sport that, again, this is a couple of years after the lockout that really needed a, signature event, I, I think the Winter Classic is worth putting on a list. The only other thing that I had, and again, I think this is probably just because I, you know, although I'm a, I'm not a Boston sports fan, I've certainly spent a lot of time in Boston and around Boston sports fans, was 2001 when the Avalanche beat the Devils in seven games and Ray Bork, who had been a Bruins superstar for God, I don't know how many years and was traded mid season to the Colorado avalanche. He'd been playing since 1979. He played his whole career with the Bruins up until the season before. And he'd been traded to Colorado to get one last chance to try and win a Stanley cup. And he finally did in 2001 and then immediately retired Ray Bork, I don't believe, is he a Hall of Famer, Ray Bork? I don't believe so. He was named one of the 100 greatest NHL players. I don't know if he is in, now he's in the Hall of Fame, immediate Hall of Fame. He was in the Hall of Fame in 2004. So, you know, maybe a little bit weak, but a Hall of Famer who'd been in the league for 20 some odd years, finally getting to go to another team and win a championship. It's, it's you know, they, as soon as they won, they skated over and handed the cup to him. It was very much kind of, viewed first and foremost as a win for Ray Bork. So with a relative paucity of hockey moments, I feel like that's one that could sneak in there. 
Yeah, and I guess I, I honestly, when you said when you started saying it was due to your history, I thought you were going to go a different place and talk about the Capitals winning uh, with Ovechkin. You know, it, sort of having to view everything through the lens of the Penguins and Sidney Crosby, and the Penguins have won three under Crosby, and the Capitals continued to choke all those years, and he finally gets one. It's almost a Peyton Manning, Tom Brady scenario where you could argue about which one of them is better in the regular season or on the whole, but what you can't argue about is the team success. By the time Manning won his first one, Brady had won three already. It felt like a little bit of a situation like that, that Ovechkin finally got one after three cups for his sort of rival uh, Crosby. Yeah, and as droughts go, it's not a big one, but D.C. hadn't won a sports championship since 91, and this was, what, 18? So, mm-hmm. what, 27 years since D.C. Yeah. had won a sports championship, which, as cities go, is mm-hmm. it's, it's a decent amount of time. So They didn't have to wait a lot. for They didn't have to wait as long for the next one. About a year and a half. It was great. All right, so I think we've kind of covered. You didn't have anything else for hockey? No, and again, I, I will go back to my earlier comment that, like, we probably missed some, but you know, just acknowledging that instead of just randomly pretending going, Oh, well in 2012, this hat, like if we missed some and somebody wants to clue us in, please do so. So we've done the big four and I kind of feel like now we got two big categories that we can go to. We can go to Olympics or we can go to everything else. Let's do everything else. I was that was my say. thought too. Just cause I feel like we're probably going to be kind of divergent here. Cause it's such a broad category. So I'll, I'll just throw a couple. I'll throw one out at a time, okay? Why don't we, yeah, why don't we go back and forth? All right. I'm going to start with one. I, I'll i start with a couple I don't think you'll go with. Okay. I'm going to go with November 14th, 2015. Ronda Rousey loses to Holly Holm. Ronda Rousey was a, and, and still is to an extent, a very big cultural figure. The reason the UFC started doing women's competitions and now women's, comp, you know, women's, bouts are a big deal. There'd been women's MMA divisions before, but not at the UFC, not at the highest level. Ronda Rousey became this huge force, sort of like Mike Tyson with a lot of first round knockouts. She started main eventing pay-per-views, which when you talk about UFC, the reason people buy them is for the main event. She was the biggest star in the UFC at the time. Basically had never been challenged. Like having to go to a second round was a big deal for Ronda Rousey. And she went out and got her butt kicked by Holly Holm that night. Loses the, I believe it was Bantamweight Championship. Basically ended her MMA career. She came back a year later, had one fight, got knocked out again and retired. If we're talking about cultural, and I'm not an MMA fan, there's no arguing how popular it is. This was a huge moment that Ronda Rousey lost. I did Um, not have that. I actually did have... A, a UFC moment on there, which I can get to in a second, but uh, I did. You've made your case. Uh, I think it's, it definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I would, I would actually argue pretty passionately that that belongs on any list. All right. Well, why don't we stick with the theme here for a second? And again, I'm about to betray my incredible ignorance here. I had written down McGregor Diaz and this is, Another UFC moment. This is a fight between Nate. Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz. And I'm sort of ashamed to admit that it looks like they fought twice, and I'm not even 100% sure which 
fight is the one I was referring to. I don't know if, if I take a minute, I might be able to figure it out, but do you have uh yeah, I mean, the, the thing I'll say about McGregor is McGregor was, you know, he, McGregor has been the biggest male star in the UFC for a very long time. Biggest overall star, certainly in the post-Rousey era, arguably even during the Rousey era. He is in in a lot of ways a classic pro wrestling model person in terms of shooting his mouth off, realizing that the people who pay to see him get his butt kicked pay the same money as the people who pay to see him win. He's done some boxing matches and things like that, but uh, there's no doubting that he's a, for a very long time, was a dominant UFC fighter as well. All right, and this, I must be talking about the first fight because it looks like McGregor had never lost in UFC until his first fight with Diaz, with Nate Diaz, and Diaz uh, forced McGregor to tap to submission with 412 into the second round, so an undefeated guy who's been dominating the sport, losing, not only losing, but losing by submission, not by decision. That's that to me, that has to be it. So yeah, if, if I was going to pick another UFC moment, that would be, that'd be the one I'd throw on there. All right. Since we're in combat sports, boxing, you know, there's a few ways you could go with boxing. I'm inclined a, I'm inclined to not pick more than one moment, to be honest. Yeah, um, I mean, we talked about this on a, one of our first episodes. There ain't been much with boxing over the last... Yeah, and so you have Tyson Lewis in 02, and I'm, I'll circle back to that. Some other ones that would, you'd be likely to point out in terms of event stature, you know, you had De La Hoya against Mayweather. You had De La Hoya, or you had Mayweather against Pacquiao, you had some of these big fights, but it was also indicative of most of them came a few years after you would have actually wanted to see them. They were largely underwhelming fights from a fan standpoint. A lot of that having to do with the style Floyd Mayweather boxes, which is not putting aside any issues with Floyd Mayweather as the person. It's not his job to fight an exciting style. It's his job to win fights. He's the um, UVA of heavyweight boxing. Yes. Wisconsin, more accurately. I would go, with, if I had to pick one, I would probably go with Tyson and Lewis in 02, just because, again, not, not a fight that totally lived up to the, the, the fight didn't live up to what people might have been hoping for, but the spectacle of it, the pre-fight press conference, the, pre, the, the pre-fight press conference fight where Tyson bit Lennox Lewis in the leg and said some things that I I don't. I know you want to play those clips and and associate yourself with them. I'm going to say we probably shouldn't play those clips from Tyson. Uh, I don't play clips. What? I don't play clips. Okay. I was going to say the the, the, uh, the some of those Tyson quotes. I you know your agreement with them aside, we probably shouldn't play. Um, I actually I have to be honest. I don't remember what you're talking about. So somebody can look it up. I I'm, so yeah. So I mean, again, and it was very um, there's not the the. When the bell rang, not a good fight. Lewis dominated him. Tyson was way past his prime. From a spectacle aspect, which, to be honest, at this point, if you're talking boxing, a lot of what you're talking about is the spectacle aspect of it. That would be would be my pick. But there are other, you know, really really good fight. If it, if I had to pick a good fight, it would be Ward and Gotti from I think '03 or '02. But, but I think they, that did not penetrate the culture at all. Exactly. I was just about to say that that gets to the piercing of the consciousness type of thing. Which it absolutely did not. Yeah, I didn't have any boxing moments. I didn't think anything rose to that level. Which is fair. Here's one that I think you probably had too. Uh, and this is probably an easy one. 2015 American Pharaoh, Triple Crown. 
I had that as well. Um, last, pre- last Triple Crown had been in, what, 78, I think? Yeah, there was Triple Crowns in 73, 77, and 78, and then not until 2015. There had been several horses that won the Derby and the Preakness. I remember growing up, there was a few in a row. There might have been like four in six years or something. I remember there was there was Real Quiet, and there was a few other ones where... There was the one in, I think, 99 that broke its leg and had to be euthanized in yeah. the, after the Belmont. And, and then there was Smarty Jones. Did Barbaro win too? I think Barbaro was the one who, no, Bar, maybe. Barbaro was the one that broke its leg that they tried to like recuperate. That wasn't the one that had to be euthanized on the track. But it was funny. I was in Saratoga yesterday as we're recording this, and that was the one place American Farrell lost a race, um, which fits in with Saratoga's uh, graveyard of the undefeated's history going back to the early part of the 20th century it was charismatic was the horse in 99 but yeah just uh you know it had been so long and i remember watching the belmont when it happened and when american farrell won and just they kind of cut out to like a wide shot of the crowd and to just see the crowd they weren't like going nuts they were more just like in awe just like, oh yeah. my God, we saw it. It happened. Whatever you think, a team wins the World Series every year. A team wins the Super Bowl every year. We can grade those based on dominance and say, yeah, the 85 Bears were much more dominant than whoever, the the 87 Redskins who, you know, won a strike shortened season, whatever. It's not given that a horse is going to win the triple. And it was it was starting to become an issue of whether it was possible anymore. Because the Belmont is a mile and a half, which is much longer than these horses are used to running. Yeah. And they run those three races in six weeks. The Preakness is two weeks after the Kentucky Derby. The Belmont is three weeks after the Preakness. Those none, No other horse runs those three races. If you don't win the Derby, you don't run those other two races. So it's not like, you know, in 78 or whatever it was or where there was a horse that came in second all three years. That's not the way it is anymore. So you were wondering, like, maybe this is just never going to happen again. And then American Pharaoh did it. And it was like, wow, we saw it. No, I had never seen, you know, I was 30 something at the time. I'd never seen it. So. And I should apologize. 2015, or I'm sorry, 1999 charismatic did get hurt to not be able to win the triple crown, but was not euthanized actually didn't die until about three years ago. So my apologies to charismatic for killing him about 18 years early. So yeah, I mean, you, you can't get away from having the, but there, there was a horse. You're right. There've been a couple. There was silver charm. There was real quiet, whatever, but there was a horse who was going for the, the triple crown at the Belmont fell down, got hurt and was euthanized. And I, I have to admit, I didn't know until a couple of years ago, like I was always like, well, why would they like, I know it can't race anymore, but from a PR standpoint, I didn't realize that, when horse races, if they break their leg in a certain way, it's almost impossible for them to recover. Yeah. So it, it's not like a, and again, you can have your moral qualms with horse racing if you want. I'm not saying that, but like, it's not like, oh, we can't race anymore. We're going to kill it. It In that specific situation, it is a thing they're making from a, you know, a humane. I was going to say humanitarian, but then I realized it doesn't technically apply. Yeah. From a humane standpoint. All right, I think, where do you want to go next? What other ones do I have here? So we talked about, I mean, I have golf. I have the Tiger Woods. I don't know if we want to consider the whole thing with him, with the 
passing out and everything. I don't, I guess it's, is that a sports story or no? I guess not. I wouldn't think so. I think there's other tiger stories you could put on there. I had two potential tiger moments. I'm guessing the one you had was him coming back and winning his first, was it the masters last year when he finally won his first major after all that in 19? Yeah. Yeah. And then I also have Oh nine, the U S open. Maybe it was 08. I think it was 08. Was that him and Rocco mediate? Yeah. The, the 18 hole playoff. That was 08. And I had that on there too. And the reason I should have known it was 08 is that was about three weeks after I'd started my first job out of college Mm -hmm. uh, in DC and the break room, you know, the company I worked for had a break room and people would hang out in there, but you didn't like hang out in there all day. And they had a TV. Usually it had either the news or just like ESPN on kind of on a daily basis. And that day it was filled. There was people in there all day just watching the golf. And this was before even the people even the upper level people at my company making high six, low seven figures a year didn't really have cell phones that you could live stream on in 2008. So there was like high level people in my company who just like camped out in there all day and just worked from that, you know, worked in front of the TV all day to watch that. The U S open is the one major that doesn't do playoff holes. They do a whole another 18 holes the next day, the fifth day in a row of 18 holes, which it's easy to laugh and say, oh, it's golf. But that that's pretty tiring to, I'd imagine, I don't play golf, but I mean, you've just gone through 72 holes in four days. That, to have to go out there and do another 18 the next day, that's pretty, yeah, you got to have some endurance there. Because they train for four. Yeah, you know, they exactly. They train for 72 holes. So yes, absolutely. Those are my two Tiger moments. And then I guess it would have had to have been this century when Phil finally won his first major. That was the 04 Masters when Phil finally won a major. That goes on there too. Yeah, well, no, but the question with Phil is if you do you really. So I would argue there's two Phil moments because what tournament was it that he won just a couple months ago? Was that the, was that the U.S. Open or was that, the, that, was, that was another U.S. Open, wasn't it, that he just won? Was that to complete his career grand slam or no there's one he still hasn't i guess he hasn't won the pga i don't know i i'm pulling it up now he's won he's never won the british or no he's never won the u.s open take that back it was the pga that he won this year yep so he's won one british three masters and two pga and he won the PGA in 2013. No, he, he must have won the British because it says he won the Open Championship in 2013. Yeah, yeah. No, he hasn't won the U.S. Open. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I misspoke originally. He's he's finished second in the U.S. Open six times. He's won one British, two PGA, and three Masters. And I believe his win in – yeah, he his win in February when he – I'm sorry, in May, rather, when he won the PGA, that's the oldest – person ever to win a major so and everybody talks about the i think it was whatever year it was that nicholas won the masters it was actually in the book that i read it that i the crowd goes wild book i think it was 86 that he won the masters at 46 and so phil broke that record so that that's that's a pretty big feat to be the oldest guy ever to win a major championship so i feel like you got to have one of those phil moments on there and a an argument can probably be made for both. If I had to pick one, I'd probably actually pick the recent moment because yeah, the recent one was more. Significant that's a record. Golf. The first moment was more significant just to him. Yeah. Yeah. So you're probably right. 
I think I just did the fill. So why don't, why don't you go ahead? I think we're, we're, we did golf. Where do you want to go next here? Do you have anything else non-Olympic? I have a few. Yeah. Um, you have to put 2000. Uh, I'm going to go to NASCAR. Mm-hmm. I, I don't love that. I have all these negative ones. 2001 Dale Earnhardt. No question. Oh yeah. 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 Dale Earnhardt dying at the, the Daytona 500. Just, a. Uh, you know, really an un—I don't want to say unfathomable because it's—I feel like all these guys know it's a possibility every time they got get into their car. But the biggest star in the sport, sort of the biggest active legend in the sport, not only dies but dies during a race, during their most famous race, leaves a son who is going to carry his name within the sport for decades. Yeah. Uh, and it also led to a lot of changes in the sport and the safety culture around it that may not have happened because it's not like he was the first guy ever to die in a race, but the fact that it was Dale Earnhardt who died in their biggest showcase, you know, the the race, that's the probably the one NASCAR race that, that a non-NASCAR fan might flip on for a few minutes. So mm-hmm. to have the biggest guy die in the biggest race. And I think that might have been their first race on Fox. I used to have a VHS copy, actually, you taped it originally, um, of the 2000 NFC Championship game between the Giants and the Vikings, which was January of 01. And it's either at halftime or after the game, they interview Michael Waltrip. And they're talking about how the week after the Super Bowl, Daytona 500, the first NASCAR race on Fox. So I, I believe that was the first NASCAR race on Fox that that happened. So, so there were unwatchable tragedies on TV two weeks in a row on Fox. I don't know. This Super Bowl 35 is on CBS. Oh, that's a good point. Um, shows, how, shows how much it's stayed in my memory. But uh, yeah, so, and, and yeah, I think it, it might have, somebody more knowledgeable about this would have to speak to it, but it also seemingly changed the culture around safety improvements from like, why don't you let out, why don't you just get out there and let them boys race to like, Yes, let's if it sacrifices a few miles an hour, let's get it so that not that these guys won't crash, but when they get into crashes, they walk away from them. I think that's right. All right. Uh you ready for me to do another one? Yes. Two thousand eight, Wimbledon Championship, men's Federer Nadal. Federer is ranked number one. Nadal is ranked number two, widely considered uh, one of the greatest tennis matches ever played. Nadal defeats Federer in five sets, 6-4, So again, don't four hours and 48 minutes, which is long for a tennis match. Don't claim to be in any way any sort of a tennis expert, but I think the fact that experts consider it to be perhaps the greatest tennis match ever or one of the greatest got to be on the list. Absolutely. Yeah, and again, those two sort of the... Growing up, not knowing anything about tennis, to me, it was like I always knew of like, oh, there was Sampras and Agassi, and then Sampras was around much longer. But those two sort of took the mantle after that, at least in the popular culture, as the two best tennis players, male tennis players in the world after that. I think I have, I think I have three more. Why don't you just give, give, give them to us and I'll, I, I don't believe I have anything more written down here, so. So first of all, I feel like you need something with well, Lance one Armstrong. More written down, but you ahead. need something with Lance Armstrong. True. Whether that's his scandal 
or some of his amazing wins or probably a combination thereof. I think you need something with him. I have, this is the one kind of international moment that I have, and I don't know that this would have even actually reached the level of inclusion in our theoretic, uh, you know, book or whatever we're putting together. But, and that is in the English football league. And I have to, I don't even know that I'm going to be able to pronounce this. Um, Leicester, L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R. I'm sorry. You're talking about soccer now, or what are you talking about? Yeah. Soccer. Leicester. Leicester who were... I, I have this on my list, too. They won the Premier League, uh, with, and they had previously been 5,000 to 1 underdogs. You know, I think the it's odds Leicester. Against, I think it's actually Leicester. The odds against them were 5,000 to 1 to win their division the, the following, you know, before the season started, and they ended up winning the Premier League. So... Well, and the thing you have to realize about the Premier League is the Premier League started in the early 90s, started in 92, 93. The Premier League, it's, there was what they called the Big Four era. And that's been almost entirely the whole time of the Premier League, except the team got added. It, Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool, and Chelsea. And then in the last 10 years or so, Manchester City has been added to that. Mm-hmm. Those are the teams that win. There's not, you know, the way the Premier League is designed with the bottom three teams get relegated and then the top three teams from the next level come up every year. Top five, I believe it's, if you finish in the top five, you get into what they call the UEFA Champions League, where you play the top teams from the other, you know, the Spanish League and the Italian League and German League. It's it's an era, five teams are basically, it's it's like college football almost. It's like, okay, you think Alabama is going to win. But you realize that, you know, just in a given year, okay, Clemson might be able to win the championship. LSU might be able to win the championship. Ohio State. And then you go, okay, who's got an outside shot? And you're like, well, with their schedule, if Oregon goes undefeated, they'd get into a big five bowl. Or they'd get into the playoffs. There is no contingency whereby Akron can win the national championship. Yeah. There, there is. If they go undefeated, well, their schedule wasn't good enough. They finish ranked 17th. They get into a good bowl. They make good money. They're, at the start of the season in college football, there is no chance that most of the teams can win the national championship. And that's obviously from a game standpoint, it's not the same because if you win all your games, you're the champion. But the way the leagues are structured, there is no chance for a Leicester City to win the championship. And they did. In the 2015-2016 season, the years before that, it had been, I'll go like just a few years before that, Manchester United in 07, Manchester United in 08, Manchester United in 09, Chelsea in 10, Manchester United in 11, Manchester City in 12, Manchester United in 13, Manchester City in 14, Chelsea in 15, Leicester City, then right back to Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester City, Liverpool, Manchester City. It it's the equivalent of, like I said, Akron, out of nowhere winning a national championship in college football. It's not done. So I think that belongs. Yes. And then the other thing I had was, and I'm getting way out of my depth here. I feel like, especially given the political story that went with it, 
and maybe to a certain extent continues to go with it. I feel like the World Cup for the women in 19, the U.S. team, I feel like that belongs on there. They were, they had a lot of fans, they had a lot of haters, but they got a lot of attention and they won and they were considered to be dominant. I think they even had the, the controversy where they didn't, they people accuse them of running up the score. I think was that, was that or, them? Yeah, maybe not being gracious enough about running up the score or something like that. And I think if you want to even use them as a, uh, an avatar, like a big story, the last 10 years or so in sports has been athletes, being more outspoken about political and social causes they care about, you know, the, the famous sort of quote for years and that we could do a whole episode on the accuracy of this, but was the quote attributed to Michael Jordan, that Republicans buy sneakers too, as sort of his justification for why he didn't weigh into issues like that. And about 10 years ago, and this could be, I'd have to get the details right, but I don't know what, when it was, but five, six, seven years ago when, LeBron and Carmelo and whoever got up at the SBs and basically said, like, we're not going to shut up anymore. We're going to talk about what we want to talk about. I remember that. This women's soccer team was sort of, you know, their most famous player was Megan Rapinoe, very outspoken about her political beliefs, high profile in a long-term relationship with WNBA player Sue Bird. It became, it, it, they were sort in addition to their accomplishment, it was a it's a good touch point on the whole intersection of politics and athletics and world issues and things like that. So, yeah. And I'm, I'm looking here that, that, that there was their first game in 19, they beat Thailand 13 to the zero, which was the source of the controversy. So, yeah, and I feel like maybe one without the other, I wouldn't go to women's world cup, but when you combine the fact that they won with, all of the political stuff, I think that they're an important part of the story of the last two decades. And that's another, as I'm realizing, one we probably should have added to our list at the beginning was um, Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee. I don't know if that's a specific moment, but it's... Yeah, I think it's. A, I think without the... Had he won more or had like a major... I feel like the fact that Kaepernick has no on-field moment, really, I mean, he took a team to the Super Bowl, but you know, David Woodley took a team to the Super Bowl. I don't know that I necessarily would put Kaepernick on that level because that was entirely off the field. There was no on the field element to it. Fair. Whereas with the women's soccer team, you know, if they were a bunch of diehard conservatives, they'd still be damn good on the field. So I kind of draw that distinction. True, true. That's fair enough. All right. So I, I, do you have anything else non-Olympic or do we want to move on to the Olympics here? No, I think we can get into the Olympics at this point. All right. So I only had one winter Olympic. No, I'm sorry. I had two winter Olympic moments, both from the same year, both from the 02 Winter Olympics, which were the Salt Lake City Games. I had the figure skating, the Olympic figure skating. The French judge. Where the French judge, and who was it that they screwed over? Was it Canada that they screwed over? I think so, yeah. It was in the pairs. It was in the mixed doubles. I watched the clip in preparation for this and how did you score it? <laughs> hey, I could, maybe I couldn't have done any worse than the judge did. Right. So yeah, I just want to kind of, uh, I want to get this. Um, it was mixed doubles, which for those who don't know is, or it's, it's called pairs, but it's men's and women. And, um, 
the scores of the French judge, the French judges' scores were thrown out, and the Canadian, the the original gold went to the Russians. But even as you're watching this and you hear the commentators, they're saying that they think that the Canadians should have been scored much higher than they were. And it culminated in the French judges' scores being thrown out and the Canadian team being awarded a gold medal. The Russians also got a gold medal. So this is not... The only analog I can really think of is the 72 Munich Olympics with the U.S.-Soviet Union basketball. Now, basketball is a different type of sport, obviously, but there was all sorts of allegations of you know that this judge was bribed and there was an arrest of a criminal by the name of Almazan... Took at Honov in Italy. He was later released by Italy, and it it kind of really fell along, um, I guess, somewhat along political lines. In that, Russia, China, Poland, Ukraine, and France—all of those judges had the Russians first. So, with the exception of of France, sort of kind of you know communist and or Eastern Bloc countries, and then the U.S., Canada, Germany, and Japan had given it to the Canadian team. And there was, again, pairs figure skating is way outside my area of expertise, but a scandal of this level in the Olympics, I feel like has to be included. Yeah. And I'm looking here. It says when uh, the French judge returned to the officials hotel, Sally Stapleford chair of the uh, ISU's technical committee confronted her, the French judge. And I'm just purposely avoiding pronouncing her name, had an emotional breakdown in which she allegedly said that she had been pressured by the head of the French skating organization to vote for the Russian pair, regardless of how the others performed. She reportedly repeated this at the post-event judges meeting the next day, part of an advantage to get French couple to French people in the ice dance competition that was to be decided a few days later. Then she did Later, she denied that and also stated that she truly believed the Russian pair deserved to win. And when you go to like cultural, like there was all sorts of like, as you're talking about this, I'm reminded of jokes Letterman would tell around the time. And then when, when it wouldn't get a reaction, he'd be like, that got a good reaction from the French judge. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the, the French judge became a big cultural thing. And I also think the fact that whenever one of these, let's be honest, very fringe sports makes it into the national sports consciousness for even a couple of days, that kind of merits its inclusion. If this was a, a controversy over a bad call in an Olympic basketball boxing, game yeah. or boxing or whatever, it probably wouldn't be the same thing. But to have this tiny little sport that no one ever pays any attention to it, I mean, even within figure skating, the men's and the women's individual get a lot more attention than the pairs do. So to have this blow up in this sport is I think a pretty big deal. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. And I believe also after that, the price of pairs uh, plummeted because people didn't believe in pairs. Oh my God. And by then, the way, do you, have you heard about the new corduroy pillow? I'm going to cut this out, but no, it's making headlines. I don't even go. Oh God, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't get it for a minute. Um, I could yeah. tell because you weren't laughing. <laughs> yeah, that that's what it was. And then I also had and looking. I don't know if I'm actually as high on this as I thought I would be. But the O two men's hockey final 
Canada versus U.S. were the highest rated uh, hockey game in Olympic history. I, I don't know that the U.S. and Canada had ever played each other before, or if they ever had since in the O2 in the O2 finals. And I'm sure the fact that it was in the United States, it was in Utah. It was just so highly rated. Now, it didn't didn't end up being a super close game, five to two. Canada beat the U.S. So, I'm not as I'm not as high on this as maybe I put it as I thought it, I would be when I put it down on my list, but that was the only other winter Olympic moment that I had. Yeah. I, I, I can't say I have a lot of, I, I know when I think, was it? Oh, six. There was some controversy in the speed skating or something like that with Bodie Miller, where he got disqualified, not Bodie Miller, um, Apollo Ono or somebody in the, somebody in the Oh six Olympics. I, I think there was some controversy with speed skating where a guy got either disqualified or, or something like that. But yes, I, I can't say I had a lot there. Before we get to the Winter Olympics, I'm just looking at my list, and this is another one of those where it's sort of a, it's not an academy, it's not a best actor award. It's where some, it's one of those sort of uh, cumulative career awards that they give, because I can't point to a specific moment, but I feel like you'd have to have something in there about the Williams sisters. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. That's whether it was a year that they played each other in the finals of a major, or maybe you know a double, you know, because they, they think they they definitely won doubles majors. I well, believe the, the other answer could be Serena. I believe Serena Williams won a major a couple of years ago, and it came out that she won that major while pregnant. Nobody knew it at the time because she was early in her pregnancy, but she it it, it turned out. Like a couple of months later, she announced that she was, you know, six months pregnant or whatever. And people did the math and were like, oh, she won the U.S. Open or the whatever Open while she was pregnant. I think I'd want to have something in there that encompassed both of them in one way or another. But yeah, this is sort of like the one you said was a cop out for Muhammad Ali. And I said I had one particularly in mind that might kind of fit into that rubric. That's what I would do, I think, with the Williams sisters is you maybe you just would have to do some sort of a retrospective because there's no single moment, but there's a lot of really great accomplishments there. Absolutely. Thumper agrees. Thumper is a jerk. Thumper. Thumper. Thumper is Thumper is the Bill Roden of this show. He heard us talking about the Williams sisters and he was about to talk. Anyway, all right, so why don't we close with the Summer Olympics? Sure. And I got to say, I do kind of feel like there's a decent amount here. And the first place I want to go is to the 2000 Summer Olympics in Sydney. And this is another one of those sports that doesn't really make it onto the national consciousness all that often. Do you know where I'm going with this? 2000 Summer Olympics? I honestly do not. This is Rulon Gardner. Oh, yes. In the Greco-Roman wrestling event, he defeated Alexander Carolyn at the 2000 Summer Olympics. Carolyn had been undefeated for 13 years and had not given up a point in six years. Gardner defeated him and in the process, won the gold medal. He later won the bronze in Greco-Roman wrestling in 2004. I actually watched this live, and I then and now am not much of an Olympics watcher. I'll watch a lot of swimming because Allison loves it so much, my wife, but 
other than that, I watched very little Olympics and I just happened to be home that night flipping channels and, you know, landed on the Olympics and going into it, they were doing a story about this guy who had been undefeated, this Russian who'd been undefeated for 13 years and how Gardner was hoping to upset him. And I don't think these matches take more than a few minutes, if I'm remembering correctly. No, and, I remember- and you have to, Greco Roman, like when you think of, if you're like a person who's not versed in amateur wrestling, what you're thinking of is, is freestyle wrestling. You know, what you see in high school and things like that. And there's, there's freestyle wrestling in the Olympics as well. Greco Roman wrestling is much different where essentially like breaking your, grip between your hands is a big deal so it's 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 a very different and that's what we're talking about here so it forbids holds below the waist yes so it's more of an emphasis on throwing than on sort of tripping and trying to get them just to fall down to the ground you actually need to try and throw them down to the ground and Mm -hmm. basically in, in amateur wrestling you get a point whenever you do something to the other guy throw them down or whatever. And again, again, way outside my depth here, but it had been what, what did I just say? Five years since this Russian, since, um, since Carolyn had given up a point six years since he'd given up a point. So this was a really big moment. And Gardner was a minor celebrity for a little while in American sports. Yeah, it was, it was a definitely a big deal. Four years earlier, there'd been a, a freestyle wrestling where Kurt Angle, who later became a, a famous professional wrestler, one in freestyle so different but he had also he'd beaten an iranian wrestler who hadn't lost in a very long time but you know the real deal here was more about how dominant this is most olympics the americans win or are in you know especially since the breakup of the soviet union the u.s is either first or second in olympic medal counts especially in in those summer olympics but there are sports where you're like, oh, the U S is not a factor. You know, you'll, you'll watch an Olympic sport and you'll be like, Oh, I, I don't know if this is one, but let's say badminton. It's like, Oh, the U S is just not a factor in badminton. Greco Roman wrestling was not a sport. The U S was a factor in. It was a lot of, you know, Eastern Greco Roman people. Yeah. And, and Eastern European and, and things like that. And for him to win. And I believe there was a very famous picture of, the referee raising Gardner's hand and then the the guy he defeated looking very disgusted with himself that became, I think might've been, it was either the cover or maybe like the middle of sports illustrated. And it's not as if Gardner went on to then dominate the sport for years and years. He won bronze at the pre at the following year. It wasn't like he went on to win another gold four years later. So exactly kind of a moment in time. All right. I have, I think one, two, three, I have four, Four more Summer Olympic events, uh, but I'll let you. Why don't you kick us off? What What did you have? Well, I mean, I'm sure you have to have Michael Phelps in 2008. Um, yes, the insane run. You may have the details. What was it? Eight gold medals that he won in 2008, seven or eight. I, feel I like. think he hadn't Spitz won eight in the 70s, and. Michael Phelps broke that record. Let me take a look here. I can pull up. And generally the Summer Olympics, and we're obviously going through that right now, from a TV coverage standpoint, at least in this country, the first week is swimming, and then the second week is track, like mm-hmm. in terms of what gets the most attention. And that first week, it was, again, I, was, I had just moved to D.C. a couple of weeks earlier, and I remember the Saturday night, like one of the last nights of the swimming, 
I had just gone into the city to kind of wander around and I went into a bar and everybody was watching the swimming. It was, you know, cause it was Michael Phelps going for whether it was his eighth or his ninth gold medal or whatever, but that was just a, you know, it was the biggest sports story in this country and the world for a little while. Eight gold medals. He set a world record in seven of those events. And in the eighth where he did not set a world record, he set an Olympic record. So, yeah, crazy. And he became a celebrity. I mean, there was, you know, people recognized his face, which for an Olympian is rare. It, it happens, but it's not, doesn't happen to too many people. And he became a an international celebrity, and he still is to this day. I think he's doing analysis on NBC of the swim, the swimming events in the Olympics right now. He is. He definitely is. I think if you're going to do a, a, a men's swimming, you should probably do a, a women's swimming. And I would go with Katie Ledecky from 2016. Her Not quite. Islanders. I'm sorry. Her, her uncle is the, is one of the two principal owners of the Islanders. You know, I knew that and had forgotten it. We'll remember it. No, not not the same level as of dominance as Phelps in 08, but she wins four gold medals, sets two world records, and she's competing again this year in the what's been called the 2020 Olympics. She's already won two gold medals and two silvers in this year's Olympics. I think it might essentially be over by the I think time it's you all done for her. I saw her tweet something now because. It... Since I follow the Islanders on Twitter, they retweet everything that she tweets. And she said, like, you know, it was a great time. Tokyo, two golds, two silvers. I'm coming home. So I think she's done now. So four gold medals for her in 16 and two world records. It, it, this is obviously recently. She, she also swam, I believe, in 2012 as a very, very young. She was 15, I think, in 2012. And she won a gold in the 800 meters, um, 800 meter freestyle and set a, an AR, which I assume means an American record. So, By the way, they the other night during the Olympic coverage on NBC, they tweeted out women's 800-meter freestyle top times ever. Does she have like all of them? The top 23 are all Katie Ledecky. She has won the 800-meter freestyle for women. She has the 1 through 23 <laughs> as the fastest times ever. Jeez, that's crazy. I mean, it's, yeah. it's hard to think about. It's it's obviously it's a very specific length, but like if you looked at the single season home run record and the same guy at the top twenty three, you'd be like, "Wow." <laughs> yeah. All right, we got two more. Did you want to? Or I have two more. You you can have as many. Yeah, as go, you go, go ahead. So somebody who's been in the news a lot. Recently, Simone Biles, U.S. gymnast, four golds, uh, also in 16 at, at Rio in the team all around vault and floor exercise. Don't ask me to elaborate on what some of those mean. But in addition to the dominance, not a lot of black Americans in gymnastics uh, these days or any days for that matter. So, again, sort of the combination of the groundbreaking and the women or I'm sorry, the groundbreaking and the winning. I definitely would include her on there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that starting in 2012, I believe she was on that team even in 2012 that was, you know, won the gold medal. Uh, I don't believe so. I'm not seeing any medals for her in, in 12. Okay. Because, I, I mean, I know, I know they won in 12 with, it was like Michaela Maroney and Allie Raceman and, mm -hmm. and a few others, but maybe, maybe she wasn't on that team. But 
And I think maybe this gets to my point. I, if we're putting together this list, I don't know that I could necessarily justify two separate women's Olympic gymnastic moments. Fair so I, I would probably put Simone Biles. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. For those reasons. And then the only other thing that I had from an Olympic point of view, and this is one that's not American, but I think the pure dominance of it is Usain Bolt. Yes, the, no question. What do they call that? The fastest man in the world? If you win the 100, I think, right? That's, I believe that's what it is. And he won... In 2012, he won golds in the 100, the 200, and the 4 by 100. He did not, and he also won, he's won the 100 three years in a row. I don't know, is he, I don't think he's, he's done, isn't he? Isn't he retired? Yeah, he's retired. And, and the thing, like, like, as I remember reading about in 2012, like, the U.S. Olympians, the basketball team, the 100 meter in track is like the event. Everybody on that 2012 U.S. basketball team was at that event. It's the race, like they say, for the fastest man in the world. And Bolt, my uh, a friend of mine had gotten married a couple of weeks before that and was on his honeymoon in Jamaica during the 2012 Summer Olympics. And he said that, like, he had been, you know, they were out at whatever, wherever they were in the resort. When Bolt was about to race, all the staff who, you know, normally they're very, you know, they're very trained to, like, be always sort of on attention for the customer or yeah, the, blend into the background for the, and for the guests needs. And if you like kind of motion over, but it's like, they said, like, as soon as Bolt was about to race, they all just went to the bar to watch the, the thing. Like, <laughs> and it was just kind of, and nobody got mad at them. It was just like, Hey, that's, they didn't, they didn't, if you had said like, Hey, I need something. They'd have been like five minutes, you know? Cause it was, that was, he was the biggest star in the world during the 2012 Summer Olympics. Well, it's also an event that takes about 23 seconds to watch from yeah, not preparation even. to end to celebration. So, <laughs> yeah. So he won the 100 and 200 in 8, 12, and 16. And he was also on the gold medal winning relay team in the 4x100 in both 12 and 16. And now he's retired. Never won a silver or a bronze. It was all golds for him. You know, 8 for 8 in the golds. So... Yeah, again, we certainly sort of lean against non-American moments. There's a higher bar to hit there, but I think no question that level of dominance in the premier track event in the world definitely merits inclusion. Yeah, no, it it overcomes whatever our uh, sort of slants are. I did not have anything else, did you? Not that I can think of at the moment. You know, we've covered we covered the big, big North American sports. We covered the Olympics and and tennis and golf, and tried to do our best with everything. I mean, again, I'm sure if you know a lot about rugby or cricket, we yeah, but none of those ever make it into the national, not, or not our national, yeah. That that that's all I'm saying, and I'm sure maybe if you're a big hockey fan you can point to something we maybe missed and again we're open to that we're we're acknowledging that we're doing this within the confines of our own experiences but yeah i I think from our point of view we covered as much as we uh i i I think it's pretty comprehensive yeah and there's tears you know it's it it's it's first there is tears when we talk about the 04 red Sox or the (laughs) you know there, there are definitely tears there i agree with you there's, yeah, so no, but there, there are tiers of, you know, 
obviously a, a big NBA moment or a big baseball moment is going to be bigger than some Olympic sport that's more obscure or something in the World Cup, especially if it doesn't involve the U.S. But overall, I think we got a pretty good, pretty good list there. Um, yeah, this was cool. This was fun. This was a little, a little different than the type of thing we usually do. But I thought it would be a nice, nice change of pace. Yeah, no, it was it was great, and it's it's important to kind of realize that even as like a sports history person, it's like there's plenty of sports history going on right now, you know, and then that's obviously a lot of the focus on this podcast is about older things and things that people either, I was born in 1986. Most of what we talk about is before I was born or certainly before I was consciously aware of what was going on. There's plenty that's gone on this century, this decade, et cetera, that is worthy of, I mean, there's, there's a bunch of topics we just touched on where I'm like, oh, we could do a full episode on that. I'm not saying we will, but it's it's, it's just kind of helpful sometimes to realize, like, oh, no, the, a lot of the things that have happened now are just as interesting as things that happened 100 or 70 or 50 years ago. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. We will most likely journey back to previous centuries in the next we will have the greatest sports moments of the 19th century on our next episode. <laughs> <laughs> or the 18th. Guys shooting at pheasants or whatever. All right. Well, until next time and until the next great moment we choose to cover, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already... We have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.